With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode 389. It's titled, Are Short-Term Vacation Rentals and Single-Family Rental Homes Contributing to the Housing Crisis? In 2009, our family rented for the first time a vacation home. It was in Maine, and we stayed for two months. We used Airbnb to rent vacation homes and apartments in 2013. We rented houses and apartments in Japan, Korea, and Europe. While we were in Kyoto, we gave the address of our Airbnb rental to a taxi driver, and he drove around the neighborhood. It was in a residential area, and then he wouldn't take us to the door. He called one of his taxi friends, and we didn't speak Japanese, but clearly he was going back and forth thinking, why are these Americans in this residential neighborhood? There's no hotel here. He found the whole experience a little confusing, as did we, because it was one of our first times renting in Japan using an Airbnb. We finally made it to our rental in that case. And then on our last trip to Japan in 2018, there was much more regulation surrounding rentals. We had to upload copies of our passports. And apparently rental houses or short-term rentals in Japan can only be rented for 180 days per year. I've rented an Airbnb over 80 times in the past nine years, all over the world. We've also rented our farmhouse on Airbnb. Short-term vacation rentals are convenient. They give us a fascinating look at the culture because we often can stay somewhere apart from the tourist areas. Short-term vacation rentals can be economical. We have often used Airbnb when traveling with family because it was cheaper than renting multiple hotel rooms. We last rented on Airbnb a house in Tucson for a month over Christmas as we had all of our family there. But using Airbnb or VRBO can also feel a little bit odd. Sometimes it feels like you're intruding in a neighborhood because you're not not a neighbor, you're visiting and you're not the first one to have stayed there. It's almost as if people know we're tourists and we're not really supposed to be there because we're disrupting the local ambiance. My question then, as I ponder short-term vacation rentals, is do they displace people? Are they leading to a housing shortage, contributing to rising rents and rising home prices? I've also thought about those questions in conjunction with three individual equity real estate investment trusts that I bought last year. I bought American Homes for Rent, tickers AMH, Invitation Homes, INVH, and Sun Communities, The ticker is SUI. American Homes for Rent and Invitation Homes own tens of thousands of single-family rental homes. My investment thesis, and this was an experiment for me because I rarely invest in individual stocks or individual REITs, but the thesis was there's a housing shortage in the U.S. 
combined with a demographic tailwind as millennials enter their peak home buying years. And that will lead to continued increases in housing prices and housing rent. And that would benefit these equity REITs. Short-term vacation rentals and equity REITs that purchase single-family homes to rent, crowdfunding platforms such as Arrived Homes and Roofstock that allow for the purchase of single-family rental homes, they are examples of the financialization of housing. There are many definitions of the word financialization. I like the definition by economist Gerald Epstein. He wrote in his 2005 book on financialization, Financialization means the increasing role of financial motives, financial markets, financial actors, and financial institutions in the operation of the domestic and international economies. Financialization for housing is where housing is treated as an asset, an investment, and companies and securities arise to maximize that value as an asset, as opposed to housing being a public good that everyone has a right to. Housing has had a financialization aspect for a very long time. There have always been landowners, landlords, and renters. Governments have also been involved with housing, including adopting policies that can encourage or discourage financialization. Examples of these public policies include reducing down payments required to get a mortgage loan, or governments providing guarantees for mortgages against defaults. Both of those things exist in the U.S., where mortgage-backed securities, which are guaranteed by the government against default on the underlying mortgage loans, have led to lower interest rates, more affordable houses in many cases, but can also push up houses. We explored that aspect of financialization in episode 238 of the podcast. The public policy in the U.S. to allow the deductibility of mortgage interest on tax returns. That has also contributed to higher housing prices because wealthier individuals that tend to itemize their taxes can then afford a bigger house, and so they pay more. There are rent regulations and provisions that guarantee that rent can't increase above a certain level. That can reduce the supply of rents and and make rents for those that don't have those rent guarantees or rent restrictions have to pay more for their rent. Governments have been involved in housing projects, building entire projects, or providing housing vouchers or tax credits to create affordable housing. My mother was born in 1940. The year after she was born, her father became bedridden with a serious heart condition, and he was forced to sell his paper company. In 1942, the family moved from a big house that they were renting in Cincinnati to a government-subsidized housing complex built by the Cincinnati Metropolitan Housing Authority. This was one of the first housing projects built out in that area to alleviate the housing shortage that occurred during World War II. My grandmother felt like moving to this apartment was camping. It was incredibly small, with two adults and four children. My mother and her brother would stand between the kitchen and the living room where there was about a six-inch space and pretend that was the dining room. When my grandfather died in 1943, the family had to move from a three-bedroom apartment to a two-bedroom apartment because there was less people. So two bedrooms for, at that time, five individuals. I wonder, those cramped conditions, how much that influenced me to want to own a house including a bigger house that wasn't cramped, at least subconsciously. 
I was surprised in researching this episode the level of home ownership rates around the world. In the U.S., the home ownership rate is around 65%. That's calculated by dividing the number of owner-occupied homes by the total number of houses that exist. That home ownership rate varies fairly dramatically. France and Australia have a similar percentage as the U.S. In Romania, the home ownership rate is 96%. It's 88% in Singapore, 80% in Norway. And then there's countries where the home ownership rate is much less. 50% in Germany, 42% in Switzerland, and 22% in Hong Kong. Most of us participate and potentially benefit from the financialization of housing. Maybe we rent Airbnbs or we own one, a short-term vacation rental. Maybe we own a longer-term rental unit. In the U.S., there's about 126 million occupied housing units, of which 44 million are rental units. And of that 44 million... About a third, 16 million, are single-family home rentals. Single-family rentals then make up about 12.5% of the total occupied housing units. What we're seeing in the U.S. is a housing shortage because there are more households as children grow up and form partnerships, have additional children. In 2021, there was a need for 2 million additional homes, and there's estimates that the U.S. will need another 7.5 million homes, apartments, and houses between 2022 and 2026. And one of the unknown questions is, will the number of units catch up, the supply with the demand? It definitely didn't in 2021, where there was about a 700 to 800,000 shortage of new homes. These single-family REITs, like Invitation Homes and Americans Home for Rent, they contribute to the supply of houses, but they've also been criticized as contributing to the financialization of the housing market. Invitation Homes owns about 82,000 units, and American Homes for Rent owns 56,000 units. But if we look at equity REITs, which are publicly traded securities that own real estate, Equity REITs own less than 1% of the single-family home rental stock and less than 5% of the apartments. If we compare that, equity REITs own 50% of the malls. So equity REITs play a role, but most of the housing stock is owned by individuals or other private entities. If there is, though, a housing shortage, it should show up in vacancy numbers. And the homeowner vacancy rate in the U.S., so the percentage of homes that are vacant, this would be homes that are not being rented, that are owner-occupied or just sitting empty, is 0.8%. That is the lowest going back to the 50s, and that's how far the data went back. We can compare that to 2010 when the number of single-family homes that were vacant was almost 3%. And that's when companies like Invitation Homes got started because there were so many vacant homes that these companies started buying them up and renting them out. The rental vacancy rate, so the percentage of rental units, apartments, and single-family homes, currently is 5.8%. That is the lowest since 1984. It got over 10% in 2011. If you have a housing shortage, it will show up in lower vacancy rates. And we're seeing that. It will also show up in higher inflation. The two housing components that make up the U.S. Consumer Price Index are owner's equivalent rents, which is what homeowners think they could rent their house for, 
That was up 4.8% in the past year, the highest since 2007. That element makes up 24% of the consumer price index. A second housing element is the rent of primary residence. This would be rent for an apartment or a single-family home, makes up 7% of the consumer price index. That also increased 4.8%, the highest since 2007. There is a housing shortage in the U.S. It is showing up in very low vacancy rates, showing up in higher rents, higher inflation. Does these single-family home equity REITs contribute to that? Or do short-term vacation rentals contribute to that? David Singelin, he's the CEO of American Homes for Rent, said, Our country's housing shortage was years in the making and will likely take years, if not decades, to fix. At American Homes for Rent, we are doing our part by developing premier build-to-rent communities, which is adding to our country's housing stock while offering families a superior housing and lifestyle option. Invitation Homes has found that their resident turnover is the lowest ever. Their units are 98% occupied, and the average household stays in those units for 32 months. You're seeing lower turnover in rental housing because the cost of home ownership is so high. The price of a home in the top 50 metro markets in the U.S. is up 40% since 2019, but the median rent is only up 10 to 15%. That makes renting more affordable than buying a house. The areas of the country that have the most expensive homes relative to rent is San Francisco, Seattle, and Austin. Single-family rental tenants are having to stay in their houses for longer as they have to save more for a down payment because home prices have gone up. We're also seeing a number of home buyers start to, to trade down to, to smaller homes. And so they end up competing more with the single family home rentals, which tend to be smaller homes because then the rent's more affordable. As I look at it, I don't think these single family home REITs, which make up just a very small percent of the rental housing market, are contributing to the housing crisis, higher home prices or higher rents. In some ways, based on how they run, they could make the rental market more efficient because they're able to build, maintain, and handle the operations at scale. I'm not so sure on the same question for short-term vacation rentals. If you look at New York, I saw one article that showed the number of apartments available for rent in New York City currently is less than the number of short-term vacation rentals. Easier to rent a, an Airbnb than it is to find a new apartment in New York, which is why rent for an apartment, median rent in April, was $3,870 in Manhattan. And there was only 4,700 apartments available to rent compared to 20,000 last year at this time. The vacancy rate in Manhattan is 1.5%, the second lowest on record. In Teton Valley, Idaho, where we spend the summers, there are 6,100 housing units. About 9% of those are Airbnb listings. There's over 500 Airbnb listings. Globally, according to a report by iProperty Management, there are 115,000 vacation rental companies. 21% of vacation rentals are in in the U.S. and 60% are in Europe. And 70% of those rental companies are small businesses. They rent between 1 and 19 units. Only 10% are renting over 100 units. And worldwide, 450 million people have used vacation rentals. It's incredibly popular. Airbnb is finding that individuals want to stay longer. 
They want to rent for a month or two rather than it be shorter term. More and more individuals have decided to buy units to rent on Airbnb because the economics are so compelling. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com david. That's linkedin.com david to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I saw a report by AirDNA, which looks at the vacation rental housing market. And they gave some examples of the top areas. One is Slidell, Louisiana, where my aunt and uncle used to live. The average home value there, the typical home price is $225,000. An occupancy rate for an Airbnb is around, averages around 62%, with an average daily rate of $339 on Airbnb. That means if you owned a house in Slidell, Louisiana, decided to list it on Airbnb, you potentially could make $69,000 in revenue before cost. That's a 30% yield. In Kansas City, Missouri, which is the 20th leading market, according to AirDNA, its typical home value is $209,000, a 61% occupancy rate, $200 average daily rate. You could earn $38,000 per year, just revenue before expenses. That's about an 18% yield. That's a much better yield than buying a house and renting it long-term to a long-term tenant. That encourages more short-term rentals. The Arizona Daily Star, which is the daily paper in Tucson, mentioned a gentleman by the name of Edward Gromberg. He made $1.5 million last year running a network of 66 Airbnbs in Tucson all the way to Tel Aviv. 
He's a University of Arizona Business School alumnus. He discussed this on a, a podcast episode. He says running dozens of Airbnbs in different countries takes very little time and effort, about five to 10 hours a week. Once you taste the wealth, he says, once you taste the freedom, you can never go back. He has 20 Airbnbs in Tucson, mostly in older multifamily housing complexes, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes around the university or downtown. He told the, the Daily Star that he is boosting tourism in the economy, providing stability for landlords, quote, who are tired of renting to students, tired of dealing with annual tenant turnover and maintenance issues. Gromberg and his team takes care of all of that. But when you consider the occupancy rate, all the rooms estimated the occupancy rate for Airbnb. And a top property was something over 65%. Rarely is it up to 75%. And many Airbnbs, it's less than 50%. If you have a short-term vacation rental that's only available half the time, that's less housing available because it's not a long-term rental. My son and daughter-in-law lived in Rollins, Wyoming the past year. They rented a house. The basement of the house was an Airbnb, and it was only occupied about 25% of the time. Now, some Airbnb rentals aren't available because they're owner-occupied, and some people own two houses. We own two houses, one in Tucson. We have a cabin in Idaho. We've rented out that cabin for the past two years, but you can only access it via a snowmobile. But you could criticize us and say we're contributing to a housing shortage because we own more than one. Financialization isn't good or bad. It depends on the policy. Each community has to decide how they want to manage housing and address housing shortages. Maybe they put restrictions on short-term rentals. If you have an area where a significant percent of the housing is short-term rentals, only occupied half the time, driving up rents, making housing unavailable for many that want to work there. We look in Teton Valley where we have so many vacation rentals. There is a worker shortage in many of the restaurants and other businesses because there isn't any housing available, which is why, for example, we made our house, our cabin available to a young couple at below market rent so that they could work at the local grocery store and the local ski resort. Some communities, such as San Francisco, where Airbnb is headquartered, have Airbnbs there. The operator has to live in the dwelling at least nine months out of the year. Another issue with Airbnbs and other vacation rentals is just disturbing the peace, people having big out-of-control parties there, which is why if we, we participate in the short-term vacation market, either as a renter or as an owner, is just to be courteous. I was often kind of embarrassed to stay in an Airbnb in Japan because it just kind of felt like we were disturbing. Even though we weren't loud, we were quiet, but just being there. So we're actually less inclined to use Airbnb now than any time before, often because the prices have gone up so much. And then when you start comparing what you get with a hotel, the quality of the furnishings, the decoration versus some of the Airbnbs, which in some ways have become very cookie cutter, very much decorated in Ikea we find more predictability with the hotel. Now, that's different if it's our entire family, then Airbnbs can make the most sense. But I clearly think short-term vacation rentals, because the occupancy rates are 50% or so, and there are many, many vacation rentals, and there isn't even enough. Airbnbs finding there's just not enough units for individuals that want to rent short-term. They want the flexibility to be digital nomads, for example. 
but it is contributing to higher rents and higher home prices. Less so, I think, for single-family rentals, the longer-term rentals. And I looked and tried to, to find with those equity REITs I own whether they are doing vacation rentals because the economics are potentially more appealing. They don't appear to be doing so yet. If you're interested in participating in the single-family home rental market, there's a number of approaches you can take. In Plus Episode 370 on Money for the Rest of Us Plus, we looked at Arrived Home, which is a platform where you purchase an ownership in a limited partnership and own a slice of a single-family rental home. And I went through an analysis of one of their deals, but I liked the platform because you weren't signing a contingent payable note. You actually had ownership in a limited partnership and you could see the home that you rented. Now, the cap rates or the yields were low. 4% or so. So it wasn't a high, necessarily high return that the overall return was dependent on home prices continuing to increase. Another option is roof stock, where you can buy an entire single family rental and then you'll need to hire a manager or manage it yourself. Roofstock just released or recently released something called Roofstock One which allows you to buy a a private stock and customize an allocation to a suite of single-family rental homes. I wasn't able to spend the time I wanted on Roofstock One because that that actually looked pretty interesting. So I'm going to take a look at that in detail in Plus Episode 390. But when you're looking at any rental opportunity to purchase, recognize the risk in today's environment is while the demographics are favorable because of the housing shortage in the U.S., There's also pressure from rising interest rates, higher mortgage rates, which are making it more difficult for people to afford houses, buy houses. Now, that does contribute to demand for rents, but it also perhaps limits the potential upside because home prices don't appreciate as quickly. Any investment's risky. That's why we diversify look at different platforms, and find the one for you. My investment in those three equity REITs hasn't gone very well because my timing was not great. Given the strong appreciation of equity REITs overall in 2021, I reduced my overall equity REIT allocation and then added these three equity REITs that make up less than 1% of my portfolio, but they're longer-term holdings. But they're down like many other investments. So the benefit of a private investment is you don't get that volatility because it's appraisal based versus the public markets valuing a particular company like an equity REIT. So there's a number of ways to do that. There has been criticism of these single family home rental REITs and other platforms as contributing to the financialization of housing. And and they do. But I don't think they're contributing to higher rents, per se. They're giving opportunities for people to rent a single-family home. And as I said, renting is cheaper than buying in many areas around the U.S. Short-term vacation rentals is contributing to higher rents, higher prices. And then we each have to decide individually how we want to participate in that and decide as as we're vacationing, do we want to stay at a hotel or do we want to stay at an Airbnb? Maybe look at the local housing situation there and then decide. That's a look at financialization and housing. Thanks for listening. When we recently asked members of Money for the Rest of Us Plus what they found helpful about this service, their answers were illuminating. One member said, Plus membership has made me think more deeply about where I put my money, what it is for, and how I spend it. Another said, put simply, 
Plus Membership gives me the confidence to make investments. Others have said Plus Membership introduced them to new asset classes, helped them to better understand return and risk drivers, and gave them peace of mind that their investment approach was the correct one for them. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is the premier investment education platform and community that has been operating for over seven years. Plus members get the tools and resources they need to manage their investment portfolios, backed by top-tier institutional research. At Money for the Rest of Us Plus, we help each other as we navigate uncertain markets. I even share my portfolio and trades. If you would like some additional guidance as you manage your investments, please consider becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.